that we're in a study of First Samuel. Uh, the king at this time, the king of Israel, is King Saul, and God has commissioned his prophet, who's also a priest and who used to be a judge until he handled, handed the mantle of political power over to the first king, Samuel, who was priest, prophet, and judge, but then he handed the political baton over to the first king of Israel, Saul. And so God has commanded Samuel, who now only has the responsibilities of priest and prophet. He has commanded Samuel to instruct Saul that Saul is finished because Saul has rebelled against God too, too many times. He's rebelled against God twice. The first rebellion against God was in chapter 13, and the punishment that God issued was that King Saul would lose his dynasty. The second violation against God's will was in chapter 15, and the punishment there that God issued was that Saul would lose his kingship. Just by way of review, in chapter 13, Saul was instructed by Samuel to wait for Samuel at Gilgal. And at Gilgal, Samuel would offer sacrifices to the Lord. Saul got anxious, Samuel was late, and so Saul started to get squeamish, and his troops were getting nervous. The enemy was nearby, and Saul takes matters into his own hands, and he goes ahead and offers the sacrifice, which was a serious violation under the Mosaic Law. He pridefully took what was not his, because it was never the king's prerogative or authority to offer sacrifices. It was always the priest's responsibility under the law. And so King Saul usurped the authority of the priests. The king was to know better. The king was to know the law. The king was held to a higher standard. Or to paraphrase Jesus' words in Luke 12, verse 48, to whom much is given, much is required. And so the expectations for Saul were high, and Saul violated the law. And so the consequence there, the punishment, was that God remove the dynasty from him and give it to another. Just by way of refresher, 1 Samuel 13, 14 we read, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out, this is Samuel speaking to Saul, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord, Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So God would give the dynasty, the dynasty that might otherwise have been Saul, Saul would have had some sort of dynasty, even though he was not a descendant of Judah. And so he did not fulfill the prophecy in Genesis 49.10 that the line would come from Judah. Saul's from the line of Benjamin. But there would have been some sort of legacy that Saul would have had. But because of his violation, his rejection of God in, in chapter 13, verse 14, God instructs Samuel to tell Saul that the dynasty is finished and that God would give it to another who would pursue the Lord's heart. In other words, who would pursue the Lord's will. Then in chapter 15, Saul was instructed to destroy all of the Amalekites, but he spared the king of the Amalekites, Agag, and the choice animals. He probably spared them as trophies because back then you would put the king that you conquered, you'd put him in a cage, and you display him to your troops, you display him to your people, you display him to, to the elders of your land to show what a great conqueror you were. And you'd show up with the, the spoils of victory. And so he spared 
the choice animals and he spared the king probably as trophies. When Samuel came to confront him, Saul immediately denied it. He said, no, 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 I, I followed God's command. So it's just a straight up lie. This was a willful disobedience and a willful attempt to conceal it because Saul is no longer the humble ruler, no longer the humble king as he started. He's a prideful king. And you see that in chapter 15, because after his victory over the Amalekites that God gave him, he built himself a monument, we're told, a monument not to God, an altar not to God, but a monument to King Saul. And so when Samuel appeared, the first thing Saul did was deny, 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 deny. And when it's clear that it can't be disputed, there's no plausible deniability here because Samuel says, what's this bleating of the sheep that I hear in my ear? What's the sound of the animals that I hear? So then Saul pivots and he says, okay, well, the Nile's not just a river in Egypt. Let's take a different tact. It's not denial time. It's change the blame time. So he then blames his troops for the disobedience and he says it was their fault they did it but of course that's that's an equally lame response because he's the king and all he had to do was give the order so God issues a punishment that is delivered through Samuel to Saul that God would remove Saul's kingship and give it to another first Samuel 15 verse 28 by way of review so Samuel said to him the Lord has torn torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you Samuel is not saying that David will be sinless. He won't be sinless by any stretch of the imagination. He's not saying that David will be perfect because the reference there is is David, your neighbor who's better than you. He's saying that David, unlike Saul, will seek the Lord's will. Then the very last verse in our final point of review, the very last verse of chapter 15 tells us that Samuel grieved over Saul. You see that word grieved. It's the Hebrew word aval in the Hithpael stem. And so it has this meaning of, of grieving or, or even of mourning, a word that you would use kind of at a, at a funeral. Samuel was grieved by Saul's disobedience. He wanted Saul to succeed. There's not some conspiracy against Saul. Samuel, who is the one who God used to anoint him, to put him into the position of power, it's not as if Samuel is behind the scenes trying to rig the deal and and, and make Saul fall from power. No, Samuel grieves. He mourns that Saul is going to fall. He wanted Saul to succeed, and it hurts him that Saul has violated God's will. It especially hurts him, hurts Samuel, because Samuel knows what's coming. Samuel knows that God is issuing judgment. And so the rest of the book, the rest of 1 Samuel, details the process of Saul's fall. It will be about an 18-year period from here, from chapter 15, through the end of 1 Samuel. And during that time period, God will be finished with Saul. He's not going to take Saul out. Ultimately, he will take Saul out under what we would call the, the, the sin, under, sin unto death, the, the, the language that the Apostle John uses in 1 John. But he won't do that until the very end of the book, until Saul's rebellion peaks after he consults the witch of Endor. During this 18-year period, God will remove Saul's ability to serve God. And he's still going to be king, but God's going to use him to train another. God's going to use him as a cautionary tale for David. God will use the rebel Saul 
to train and teach a new king what not to do, what not to do when you're in a position of power. Then in chapter 16, our chapter for tonight, or what we will start tonight, we get introduced to the king, to the new king, to the king to be. Look at chapter 16, verse 1 of 1 Samuel. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Warren Wiersbe says it well. Saul was the people's king, and David was God's king. Saul was the, the king that the people wanted. Saul was the king that God gave to fit the people's pattern because the people lived by sight and not by faith. And so God gave them a king that fit that pattern. And then with David, God selects David based on God's design for a king. Back in chapter 8, the people demanded a king like all the nations. That's the phrase that's used multiple times in chapter 8. We want a king like all the nations. We don't want to be unique among the people. We want to be like everybody. We want to be like the Egyptians and like the Philistines and like the Moabites. We want to be like everybody else. We don't like this special calling that you have on us, that you have for us, God. We want a king like everybody else. And so in judgment, God gave them what they wanted. Be careful what you want. Be careful what you want. In judgment, God gave them what they requested. Sometimes we want sin for our lives because we think it sounds good. We think it sounds attractive because we've been deceived and duped by the culture, by the world. It's that way today in the year 2022, and it was that way then in 1000-ish B.C. It's been that way since, since, since the first rebellion in Genesis chapter 3. Sometimes we want sin, and sometimes as an act of judgment, God gives us what we want, even though it is sinful. It's not that God approves sin or condones sin, but sometimes in, as, as a form of abandonment judgment where He abandons us to our own devices, He gives us what we want when we want sin for our lives. Here in verse 1, God is choosing His own king based on his standard, not the people's standard. His standard is to select one, to select a king, an anointed, the one who he will anoint, to, to select one who will do his will. David fits God's standard so perfectly that in later generations, Yahweh will call himself the God of David, the God of David, like in 2 Kings 20 verse 5, or 2 Chronicles 21, verse 12. It's one thing for the people to say, that's David's God. That's Daniel's God. That's Hezekiah's God. The Gentiles would say that. That's very different than God using David to attach himself to David. When Yahweh would say, the God of David, that's Yahweh speaking. It only happens three times in the entire Bible where God attaches His name to an individual. It happens with, in, in Genesis, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And sometimes it's for any one of those individually, or sometimes it's for the group collectively. I'm the God of Abraham, or I'm the God of Jacob, or I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God says that. He attaches Himself to their names. Or He says, I am the God of David. And the third one, 
is I am the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three times in the Bible, God attaches himself to the name of an individual. What we're seeing here in the text is that David has a central, critical role in the plan of God. And there's actually a very simple reason for this. David's role in the plan of God is critical, and God puts him in his plan for a very, very simple reason. Because God wants, because David wants to be there. This is not complicated. David wants to do God's will, so God takes David and puts him in God's will. David wants to be part of God's plan. David wants to execute God's plan. He wants to do God's purposes and do God's will, so God uses him. Sometimes we don't want to do God's will. Well, okay, I'll just speak for myself. Sometimes I don't want to do God's will. I, I, look, I wish it wasn't true, but it is. And then I confess my sin. When we don't want to do God's will, which is another way of saying when we want to live in sin, be identified with the world, be identified with the ways of the world, God says, that's up to you. But I'm not going to use you for my purposes because you're in the middle of things that are inconsistent with my will. My will is holy and righteous. Again, I'm not saying that David is sinless. He's not sinless. But he is a man that seeks God's will. And so God uses him in his plan. And we will see he will use him in an incredible way in the plan of God. You see this phrase here in verse 1, Jesse the Bethlehemite. To the Hebrew ear, those would have been sweet words. Jesse the Bethlehemite. Those would have been words of comfort and warmth. The last time these words were mentioned were back in the book of Ruth. Jesse's name is found at the end of the book of Ruth. That's, that's the last time it's mentioned, the, the, the prior time that it's mentioned in the Bible. There we learn that Jesse, who is the father of David, is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Right? Ruth and Boaz, they're married. They produce a son. Their son is Obed. His, he has a son named Jesse, and Jesse has a son named David. And so David's great-grandma is the Ruth of the book of Ruth. And the last time the, the name Bethlehem was used in the Scripture, the, the, the prior time that it was used in the Scripture, was in the book of Ruth. Bethlehem is tied, the town, the town of Bethlehem is tied to the beautiful story of the book of Ruth, a story of love and compassion, a story of submission, submission to God's providence and God's redemption. It's a story of trusting in the Lord. Bethlehem stands in great contrast to the current king's town. Right? You've got David, who is the king to be, and he's from the town of Bethlehem. Then you have the current king, King Saul. He's from the town of Gibeah. You remember the town of Gibeah in the final chapters of the book of Judges, a town that doesn't have a beautiful history like the town of Bethlehem, a history like, like, like the events of the book of Ruth, a tender history. But Gibeah, on the, other, on the other hand, the town of the current king, King Saul, has a history of grotesque wickedness and evil, a history of homosexuality and gang rape and murder. And you read about that in the last few chapters of the book of Judges. What we're seeing is the text is telegraphing for us where we're going. The text is telegraphing 
that the king-to-be will be very, very different. He hails from a different town. He thinks a different way. The king-to-be will be very different than the current king, King Saul. Keep reading in verse 2. But Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. These are very alarming words. These are very shocking words. They reveal how far Saul has fallen, that he would be willing to kill the one who publicly put him in power, shows his abject power lust. It shows his entire lack of loyalty. Remember, God used Samuel to anoint Saul back just a few chapters before. And and Saul is... He didn't want to be be king. He's hiding behind the baggage. And he starts in a a, a way that is humble. And Samuel, God, through Samuel, puts him into power. And now we read these words. Samuel's not paranoid. Samuel's not exaggerating here in verse 2. He understands that if Saul finds out that he's going to go anoint a new king, he understands that Saul's going to view that as total treason and that Saul will be out to kill him. Because Saul is no longer the humble leader interested in the will of God. Saul doesn't care about the will of God. Saul couldn't care less that it is God's will to anoint a new king. What Saul cares about is his power, and he will brook no rivals to his throne. If Saul finds out what Samuel has been ordered to do by God, he will kill Samuel. This reveals the fairness of God's judgments against Saul because Saul isn't interested in doing the will of God. Saul cares about only his own will, and he's, do, he's willing to do anything to maintain power. So let's read all of verse 2 together. But Samuel said, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill, kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. In order to get to Bethlehem, from Ramah. Ramah is where Saul lives. Ramah is just a little bit north of Gibeah, so you leave Ramah, you go through Gibeah, you keep going down south. Bethlehem is, is just outside of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem at this time is still controlled by the Jebusites. And so you kind of go south and you have to go through, Samuel would have to go through Gibeah, which is Saul's hometown, in order to get to Bethlehem. And so somebody along the way is going to ask, hey, Samuel, where are you going? And when he arrives in Bethlehem, the people in Bethlehem are going to say, why are you doing here? You know, what, what, what is it that you're, what is your purpose here in, in Bethlehem? So God gives Samuel cover by creating a multi-purpose event. You don't just anoint the new king in Bethlehem, but you're also going to offer a sacrifice in Bethlehem. Take a heifer with you. I'm going to embarrass myself here and because uh, I know there are ranchers in the audience, but I mean, I know what a heifer was. I knew it was a cow, but I, honestly, I had to look up what, what kind of cow is a heifer? <laughs> well, it's a female cow that's never had a calf before. I had to say that because I did the research, so <laughs> y'all already know that. So God tells Samuel to bring a heifer with him. You're going to go to Bethlehem and you're going to anoint the new king and you're going to bring a a, a sacrifice with you. When you're bringing that heifer with you, you tell folks 
that you're there to offer a sacrifice, that you're there to offer a sacrifice to me, God says. In other words, don't tell them that you're there to anoint the king. Now, of course, at some point they're going to know that, they're going to find that out, but not now. And so this strategy that God is delivering to Samuel would protect both Samuel and the king-to-be because Saul would have gone after both of them. But as you think about the text here, you have to ask yourself, does it raise a theological question? Right? Does it raise a thorny theological question? And the question is, is God engaging in deception? I mean, the Scripture says that God is truth. Samuel, in the prior chapter, in chapter 15, verse 29, says, God does not lie. Or in Hebrews 6, 18, we're told that it is impossible for God to lie. It appears here that Samuel is being told by God to tell a half-truth. It appears that God is telling Samuel, don't tell... I shouldn't say it appears. It is being reflected in the text. God tells Samuel... Tell them that you're going to Bethlehem to offer a sacrifice. In other words, the main reason that you're going to Bethlehem, which is to anoint the new king, don't tell them that. It appears that God is instructing Samuel to tell a half-truth and that God is instructing Samuel to deceive Saul and those who might report the matter to Saul. This is not the only place where this happens in the Scripture, where we see something like this in the Scripture. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings, to 1 Kings chapter 22. Chapter 22, verse 19, and as you're thumbing there, what we're going to see, the, the context, the background here is that the prophets of the wicked king Ahab, who was a very evil king, a murderous king, his prophets had been assuring him that he was going to be victorious in battle. But God's prophet, Micaiah, tells Ahab that he's going to be defeated and he's going to die from the battle. So in 1 Kings 22, verse 19, what Micaiah is telling Ahab is, you got conflicting prophecies here, Ahab. Your prophets, which are about 400 prophets, are telling you it's, it's all roses. You're golden. You're going to be great in the battle. You're going to be victorious in the battle. But Micaiah says, nope, you're going to die. And so now Micaiah explains to King Ahab why the two conflicting prophecies, why the two prophecies that are opposed to one another. Look at 1 Kings 22, verse 19. Micaiah said to King Ahab, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramath-Gilead. The Lord wants Ahab to go into battle because it will bring about his death because he is a wicked king that God is judging. Then keep reading. And one said, this is one of the hosts of heaven, one of the angels in the court of God in heaven. And one said this while another said that, verse 21. Then a spirit, in other words, a spirit being an angel, came forward. And stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. I will entice Ahab. Verse 22, the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit. There's the phrase. 
be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets, all 400 of Ahab's prophets. Then he said, God said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. So what's happening here in this passage is God asks, which of his angels will go and deceive Ahab so that Ahab will go into battle? One of the angels says, I will do it. God says, how are you going to do it? And the angel says, I will put a deceiving spirit in Ahab's prophet so they will delude him. And God says, do it. So God initiates and executes through his angel a plan to deceive Ahab. And in verse 23, Micaiah just says it plainly to Ahab. Look at verse 23. Now, therefore, behold, this is Micaiah still talking to the king. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. And the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. So here, God discloses everything to Ahab. Micaiah revealed the deceptive words that God put into the mouth of Ahab's prophets. But despite God revealing the truth, Ahab refuses to believe. And so Ahab does, in fact, go into battle at Ramoth Gilead, and he is, in fact, mortally wounded at the battle. God's judgment against Ahab is fulfilled, and God did the judgment by using deception, although God ultimately revealed the deception to Ahab, but there was clearly deception. I mean, that's the word of the text. The New Testament describes similar activity by God. During the seven-year tribulation, God will deceive the rebels, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12. For this reason, Paul says, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. The Scripture describes the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God will... and, and For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. And Paul describes this as happening in the twinkling of an eye. It could happen in five minutes. It could happen in five months. It could happen in 50 years. It could happen in 500 years. We don't know when because God said, or Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. God in the flesh said that. But it is only believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that go. And that's why it is critical that we must trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the receiving of eternal life because we are subject to God's wrath because we're sinners by nature, subject to His judgment. And what happens is unless we trust in Christ, then our destiny is the lake of fire. When we trust in Christ, then we become the daughter or the child, of, the, the son of God, the child of God. We're saved from eternal damnation. And being in the church age, once we trust in Christ, then we're part of the body of Christ, to use the language of Paul. And so when Christ returns for His church, of which we are a member, then He spares us of the wrath to come. The Scripture describes a seven-year tribulation that will follow the rapture of the church when Christ returns 
to take his church away. The reason we call it a, the rapture is it from the Latin word, word rapturo, what a raptor does, a raptor bird, is he snatches away. And so the reason we call it the rapture is from the, from the Latin translation of the Bible, the, the Vulgate is what they call it, which uses the, the, the cognate of the word rapturo. My point is this. What Paul is describing here in 2 Thessalonians 2 is the period of the seven-year tribulation, which immediately follows the rapture of the church. In other words, all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will be snatched away by the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4, which I just described, in an instant of time, in a twinkling of an eye. And there will be only unbelievers, only rebels on the planet for that instant of time. Then there will be a seven-year tribulation a tribulation that, that, that Jesus describes, if the Father hadn't cut short, no flesh would, be, would survive. In other words, near human extinction. And during that time period, the, 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 the most bizarre things that have ever happened on the planet will happen. The spiritual warfare that we're engaged in now is an invisible war. We're engaged in the war of the ages, and that war is invisible. You don't see dem demons and angels well, everything comes out in the open during the seven-year tribulation. And that's why the book of Revelation is so full of these bizarre descriptions, things that are entirely foreign to us. But during that seven-year tribulation, there will be one who is utterly opposed to Christ, the one who is described as the son of perdition. Two people are described as the son of perdition, Judas Iscariot and the Antichrist. And it is the Antichrist that is the subject or that, it, that is part of the subject of this passage in 2 Thessalonians 2, because what will happen during that seven-year period is people will believe in Christ. They will. But there will be a huge portion of, of humanity, probably the vast majority of it, that will not. And so what we're seeing in 2 Thessalonians 2 is language that says during the tribulation, many, the, those who reject Christ and accept the Antichrist, because that's the only option. I mean, Jesus is not kind of in the gray area. You're either with Jesus or you're opposed to Jesus. There's no middle ground. He didn't intend to leave us a middle ground. And in the seven-year tribulation, that lack of a middle ground will be Christ or the Antichrist. And so by rejecting Christ, the, the unbeliever will accept the Antichrist during the seven-year tribulation. They will, ex they will seek the pleasures that Antichrist will offer because the world's got all kinds of pleasures to offer. I mean, let's be honest. Sin feels good. I mean, that's what the writer of Hebrews says. It feels good for a while, for a season. And so the Antichrist, he's going to be selling. He's going to be selling the same thing the culture sells today. It's just the devil sells it in an invisible way today. But the devil's fingerprints are all over the culture that, 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 that prioritizes what you can see and touch and feel, and pleasure is our God. And so the Antichrist, you see this language about pleasure in this passage, the Antichrist will be using pleasure to sell to humanity. And so what's happening in 2 Thessalonians 2 is this language about God sending a deluding influence is that God will judge those who reject Christ and embrace the Antichrist. And part of God's judgment is that He will send a deluding influence upon them.
The Greek word for influence is energeia. You think of an English word that's tied to that? Energy. Energy. A diluting energy. A diluting influence God will send on those who have already rejected God. And He will send that and their, their unbelief will intensify and their allegiance to the Antichrist will become even stronger. Here's what we're seeing in these passages. God uses deceit as a method of judgment against those who reject Him. As a method of judgment against His enemies. And He does so without compromising His holiness and without compromising His truthful character and without sinning in any form or fashion because it is unthinkable and impossible for God to sin. Let me say, this is perfectly understandable. There's no thorny theological issue here at all when you consider it. Think of this in terms of warfare. Was the United States ghost army in World War II where we actively and affirmatively deceived Hitler and the Nazis as to the location of our tanks and our weapons and our troops and our place of invasion, was that sinful for us to have, act, to have actively deceived the Nazis? Was it sinful for General Norman Schwarzkopf to actively deceive Saddam Hussein so that he would think that we'd enter Iraq in one, that, that, that our invasion would be in one spot, but we were really tricking him because we were going around the western flank around in, in, into Iraq through the western flank around their, around their army. Was that sinful? Was either one of those sinful? Of course not. Of course not. Those are called military deception, and it's perfectly legitimate. And so what is happening is that when the Scripture says God does not lie, or it is impossible for God to lie, it's not saying that God doesn't use deception against His enemies. It's not saying that God doesn't use deception as a form of judgment. It's saying that God is absolutely reliable and absolutely trustworthy, and He is eternally dependable and steadfast. It's saying that you can trust God, that you should trust God and His promises like His promise, if you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life, you will be saved from eternal condemnation and eternal punishment. You can trust it because God doesn't lie. God's promises are reliable. The Old Testament scholar Robert Chisholm says it well when he says, God is not above using deception when He judges rebels. The Lord is a God of truth whose word is reliable. But he may very well deceive his enemies when they have, by their actions, forfeited their right to know the truth. Close quote. This is what we're seeing in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel with this half-truth that God instructs Samuel to tell. Then we get back to the text in verse 4, and we read this. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? Samuel's reputation precedes him. He was known as a man who brought judgment. In the prior chapter, he issued judgment against Saul. And in the prior chapter, he, he hacked King Agag to pieces. He hacked King Agag to pieces literally because... 
Saul had not obeyed God. And so you might say that Samuel had a reputation of the Grim Reaper. If you've, you've ever worked at a big company, a, a, you know, a law firm, a, an engineering firm, a, a medical firm, there's always a partner or a corporate VP who's the Grim Reaper. He's the guy who's in charge of firing people. And everybody knows who it is because somebody got fired and they say, who did it? Well, that partner did it. And so, you know, you pass that partner in the hall, you pass that VP in the hall, and you are on your P's and Q's. You're, you're in the kitchen just getting a drink, and that, and that VP's in the You are on your P's and Q's because that's the Grim Reaper. I mean, you know, he didn't have the hood and the, and the, and the Sith, you know, the, the, the blade with the, attached to the, to the wooden pole, but he, everybody knows he's the Grim Reaper. And so this is how kind of Samuel's reputation is, especially because Samuel's last event of judgment is he hacked up King Agag. But really what we're seeing here is a contrast. It's another contrast between Bethlehem and Gibeah. Not only is the history between these two towns, the new king's town, Bethlehem, and the current king's town, King Saul's town, Gibeah, not only is the history of those two towns different, the leaders of those two towns are very different. Here we see that the elders of Bethlehem approach God's prophet with respect and awe. It says that they came out trembling before Samuel, trembling to meet Samuel, where King Saul, on the other hand, the leader who is in the town of Gibeah, he doesn't respect Samuel. In fact, he'd he'd be happy to kill Samuel if he found out what Samuel was up to. Again, what we're seeing is the text is distinguishing the king-to-be versus the current king. And in response to the elder's question, Samuel assures them that he's not there for judgment. Keep reading in verse 5. He said, In peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So here Samuel follows the Lord's instructions. He gathers the town elders and Jesse and his sons for a sacrificial feast. He doesn't tell them, I'm here to anoint anybody. I'm here for a sacrifice. I've got my heifer. I took my heifer with me. We walked from Ramah and we're here for a sacrificial feast. And so he tells them to consecrate themselves, meaning take a bath, get cleaned up, Put clean clothes on. You, you, you see the, the, the model of, of consecration in Exodus 19 where the people are going to meet the Lord. Take a bath, get clean, put clean clothes on because part of worship is setting yourself apart to God even physically, right? I mean, the reason we get cleaned up before we go to church is because we're coming to worship. We're coming to praise God. And so it's an act of respect. And so these individuals consecrate themselves and come to the sacrificial feast, but only Samuel knows the underlying reason for the feast. Look at verse 6. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Jesse had eight sons, and Eliab was the firstborn. He possessed physical attributes that Samuel thought, Those are pretty good for leadership. 
those attributes that this man has. He's tall and handsome, and he has an impressive appearance. Samuel concludes, people are going to follow this guy. He's just got the attributes, the physical attributes of leadership. This has got to be God's pick. But of course, Samuel is wrong. Samuel, even the great Samuel, sometimes thought superficially and thought in a way that was shallow. Tall and handsome was the description of the current king, was the description of Saul back in chapter 9, verse 2. But Saul, of course, is a disaster. You would think that Samuel would have learned the lesson about Saul, but he hadn't. And so God sets him straight, even with kind of a mild rebuke. Look at verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. These words should either comfort you or scare you. One or the other. Either comfort you or scare you, because there's no hiding from God. God is omniscient. God sees beyond and through your game face. God sees beyond and through our, faca- our facade. God's eyes penetrate even to the deepest recesses of who we are, into our, the, medical, the, the metaphysical part of us, into the immaterial part of us, which is really who you are. I'm not saying your body's not who you are. It is. But in the end, how you think is who you are. What does the Scripture say? As a man thinks, so he is. The inside, deep, 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 the part that no one else can see, not even your spouse, not even the person who knows you the best. God sees there. God sees into our most inner recesses of our person. The Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So when the Jewish scholars came in and translated this text into Hebrew and they got to the language of levev, excuse me, levav, the heart, what does it say here in our text in verse 7? The, end, the very end of the, the, the verse, but the Lord looks at the levav, at the heart. Another way to say levav is lev. When the Greek scholars who were Hebrews came in and translated the Bible, and, and it, it, that Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures called the Septuagint, they put the word cardia. That's the Greek word for heart. That's the same word that's in Hebrews 4.12 that I just recited. Hebrews 4.12, that the word of God is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the cardia, or if you prefer the levav, same word. And so God is saying here that He evaluates and judges not like you and me. God examines our thoughts, our desires, our motivations, our heart. We look on the outward appearance because, I mean, we can make assumptions. You know, I, I, I think that guy's a good guy. I, I think that lady, I think she's straight up. I think, but I've got to make some assumptions. And if she's got her game face on, or he's got his game face on, my assessment is not adequate. 
because I'm making assumptions. Now, that's not really what's happening with Samuel here. Samuel just looks at the physical appearance of the oldest son of, of Jesse and says, that's got to be the guy because those are leadership. People are going to follow a guy who's tall, dark, and handsome. And so what's happening here is God is giving a mild rebuke to Samuel. Levav means the inner person. It means the mind, the will, the motivations, the seat of emotions. And so where we look at the external, sometimes because we're not in the case of Samuel here. Samuel's just straight looking to the external. He's not even thinking about the internal. But even if we want to think, of the, think about the internal, we're not omniscient. Where we do that, God reads the minds of human beings. God looks into the very heart of human beings because he is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. For the first king of Israel, God picked a man who fit the people's standard, a king like all the other nations, chapter 8, with physical prowess and impressiveness, King Saul. But Saul proved himself unfit to rule God's people because he was disinterested in God's will. So now God picks a man that fits God's standard, not the people's standard, a man after the Lord's own heart, In other words, a man whose thoughts, desires, and motivations are after God. God picks a man whose heart is after God's heart. And so the concept of the heart, if you want to boil it down in this context, it's about the will. God picks a man, David, whose will is to do God's will. And this is why David has such a central, central part in the the unfolding of, of, of Scripture in God's plan. Messiah is called the son of David. He's not called the son of Saul. That, 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 that'd be an abomination. He's called the son of David. And in, 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 in the, the second book of Samuel, we'll see the Davidic covenant, this great promise that God gives to David, a man after the Lord's own heart. And the reason David has this great calling and great purpose in God's plan is because of his desire to do God's will. And we'll see more of David next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We thank you for the opportunity to do it in peace. We recognize that not all of our brothers and sisters around the world have the same luxury. We ask that you help us not take it for granted. Help us metabolize and digest these truths. We thank you that you recorded them for us, and we ask that you give us safe travels home. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.